Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I have the privilege of reading God's Word to you this morning. It is a passage from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does, dis- it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Good morning, church. So as we get ready to look into God's word together, I just want to dismiss our junior highs. You guys can head off to your uh, class. And if you're new here and you're in grade six, seven, or eight, uh, feel free to join them. Uh, and if you're new and you're not in those grades, you are stuck with me. All right. Um, I, I've read uh, a couple of articles recently uh, that have stuck in my mind as bizarre, and I haven't been able to get them out, so I just thought I would just get them out here um, today. Um, I read uh, an article by, uh, it was a woman writing about attachment parenting. Now, um, I don't know all of the theory of attachment parenting, but she was wrestling with this whole idea of how does, how does attachment parenting work in her home? And it's, it's about, you know, keeping, make sure your kids have maximum skin contact. Sometimes they sleep in the same bed as you and keeping them close to you and um, making sure they feel comfortable or whatever. And she was sort of going on about how she had tried this for a while and it wasn't working anymore. And she wasn't totally ready to reject the whole thing. But uh, in the course of just saying whether she was deciding whether she was moving on from this view of parenting or not, she happened to say, well, my husband never agreed with it and we're divorced now. We're split. Um, and we sort of moved on. And I thought to myself how it's interesting how so much energy and time and focus is going into thinking about what kids need. And yet at the same time, less and less focus is going into marriages and keeping them together because really the greatest thing we can give our kids is love between a father and a mother. And actually they say that even physiologically, what completes brain development in that rapid um, stage of brain formation from ages zero to six is not a uh, physiological thing. It's It's not a nutritional thing. It's not a Montessori school thing. It's actually a relational thing. It's uh, stability and love in the home. 
And when we were out in, in Guinea at the orphanage that we're connected to there, one of the things they do regularly is just chew everything. And, uh, you know, if they get a shipment of Crocs, good shoes that they need, Crocs for kids who like to chew stuff just look like big candy. And uh, so they were chewing stuff all the time. And we, we thought it was so strange. And everything that they had had a million teeth marks into it. And when we came back to Toronto, one of the people on our team kind of looked this up and said, what is this? And it's actually the disease called PICA, which um, is like a kind of an oral fixation of having to chew things, but it actually comes from, uh, they say it's often found in children who are in orphanages because it comes from not having enough physical touch from parents when you're a child. How strange is that? that a relational thing would actually manifest itself like kind of a physical symptom. And so here we are pouring all our energy into trying to make kids grow better and learn better and eat better and smarter and make sure they have 60 minutes of athletic activity day or whatever. And yet the heart, the, the better thing to do is actually strengthen the fabric and the fibers of our homes in marriage. And yet that's the harder thing to do. And so we just don't know what to do about that. And I find there's just less and less articles about that, more and more articles of how do you know if you should leave? And then I read another article about a guy, this is in our, our local newspaper, The Vaughn Citizen, who was sort of um, saying, criticizing pornography uh, for the fact that it, um, you know, has women in a subservient position to men, and it basically is, is incredibly sexist. And of course, that's true. As I read on the article, his solution was he pointed to a woman in Europe who is now um, developing porn that shows women at least equal or if not dominant to men. And he was saying solutions like this are actually what's going to help our society grow forward. And I was like, I did not just read that. So I, I wrote back to him actually and I said, I totally agree with you that that's one of the major issues. But here's a bunch of other, but we started dialoguing back and he actually said, oh, can I print your article in the paper? And then I had friends of my, uh, people in my kids' baseball team saying, hey, I read your article in the paper. Though. Okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> But that that would be the solution, that this would be the solution to that problem. This is so strange. And then I read an article by Stephen Hawking, who, uh, one of the most brilliant astrophysicists, like some are saying, you know, kind of the, almost the Einstein of our time, one of the most brilliant people, has now said recently that he thinks the only hope for our, um, our human, the human race's survival is for us to be able to find life on another planet and leave this planet and go to that one. You laugh. One of the most brilliant people of our time says, really, this place doesn't have a hope. The only hope we have is if we can find life on other planets and get there. Although I heard one person say, you know, the surest, life, the surest sign that there is life on other planets is that it hasn't tried to contact us. <laughs> uh, but this is, these are the solutions, and this is so interesting, right? We, we have a plethora of problems, and, and, and the social media and the internet itself makes us so much aware of all kinds of problems that we have. And so now you know that whatever you're going through, you're not the only person because you can look it up on the internet and realize, all these other people are having these social problems or these anxiety problems or these physical problems. And we are at the same time proposing solutions in the blogosphere and in the Wall Street Journal and in the WebMD or wherever it is. We're all looking for the solutions of the world's problems that we think, oh, this is what it'll solve. Generally speaking, if you were to survey most of what comes out and across your um, computer or TV screen or what is advertised to you and I, what is proposed to us by friends and family or the, the spheres of influences that we are in, is we need to get smarter, we need better education, so more people are pursuing more degrees, more paper, and get kids learning earlier, that we need that. We need more exercise, we need more fun, you know, we need to have better vacations and enjoy life a little bit more, and that will help us. We need more industry and creativity, more ideas, so a lot of the, the stories that are held up as success stories of innovation are new technologies or people who uh, created new things or came up with new things, so we think, okay, how can I push myself to be more creative, to be more entrepreneurial? 
We think, we all think we need more money, just a little bit more, more wealth creation. And perhaps the documentary, the latest documentary you watched on Netflix or the latest post on Facebook or the latest article you read was sort of um, helping you think that in some way or another, this is what I need more of for myself to grow or for me to deal with the problems that I'm having or, you know, if I want to be altruistic for what the world needs to deal with its problems. But the truth is the solutions are actually often much harder, right? It's sometimes easier to just try to go get another degree than it is to try to deal with what's going on in my life and why I feel a sense of dissatisfaction with the job that I do have. It's challenging to feel like, okay, what I actually need to work on in my relationships, that's just much harder than some of these other things. So I'm just going to apply my mind to those things and try to get better or smarter or more healthy. The truth is, deep down, I believe that, you know, every one of us wants to be our, better, our best selves. And every one of us wants the world to be as it should be. I think there's something within each of us because the scriptures tell us that we have been made in the image of God, that there's something in us that wants the world to be better than it is. And this series that we've been in for the last seven weeks that we're wrapping up today, and even if you're just joining us today, we've called it Fully Alive. And the premise, I said to you, just even those two words itself, we could probably all go, I don't know exactly what you mean, but I want that. I know that living is not just eating, sleeping, breathing. I know there's something, when you say fully alive, you're talking about that deeper thing, that greater thing, that higher sense of fulfillment, whatever you want to call it, whatever labels any certain group might put on it, I want that. I want to be more of my best self. And I want to be someone who is actually making a difference in the world around us. And the premise that we started with is to say that as we understand who we are and how we have been made and who God is, that we understand more of what our lives are meant to be, that we can become more fully alive. And yet, I don't know if you've had this experience, we've, we've been talking about spiritual gifts and how God has actually wired us um, to have a part of us in us that actually is the presence of Jesus to each other and to the world around us. That this, this longing, this yearning for more is actually something that's not meant to be pushed down and just moved on and say, well, that's just idealistic or naive or I don't even know what that is. But no, that's actually a clue that there's something inside us that we were made for more. That we were made to actually be together in a community, experience the presence of Jesus in us, even as we have already started to this morning and to show Jesus to the world around us. That's what we're meant to do. And yet, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes we can get so amped up about that, and then we go back into the world, and we go back into the problems that we have, and go, oh, this doesn't work. Oh, I just, I just fell on my face. Or sometimes we have this discovery, and we think, okay, this is what it is. This is going to change my life. And we walk out the door, and we trip on ourselves again. Or we bring what we feel is so significant and life-changing to someone in our lives, and they go, meh not that interested. And we go, oh, you know, something inside us dies. There's something we actually have to know that is critical to us really actually becoming fully alive. Something that if we miss this, in a sense, we've missed almost everything that we've been talking about uh, these last few weeks. We can't end without talking about this. Some of you, if I had to ask you, okay, and even if you've never been to church, you'll know the answer to this. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Because if you've been to a baseball game, you've seen it. John 3.16, right? They hold it up, and then, and then one of the wrestling guys, right, called it Austin 3.16. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Others are like, you're so cool. Um, <laughs> it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. 
It says that God so loved the world. And we just need to camp out there for a moment. God so loved, loves the world. That, that um, old hymn that the worship team just led us in, it's got, the lyrics are, um, are so poetic, you almost miss what it's saying, right? But it says, could we with ink the ocean fill? Okay, so if we turn the, the ocean into ink, and if every stock on earth was a quill, old school pen, and every person was a scribe, so if the entire world's water was ink, if everything on earth was a pen and everybody knew how to write, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. It's just a picture of saying we could never write, though we had oceans full of ink, we could never write enough about the love of God. And that's what that verse says. And I think that's why I think there are so many great verses in the Bible. But one of the reasons that one is so great, it just says, for God so loved the world. He loved the world. The things that you and I feel in us that want more for ourselves and want more for the people around us, though sometimes we want to strangle them because they don't seem to want what they need, or sometimes we get cynical or get annoyed at the way the world is. There's something I think true in each of us that comes from inside that says, it's the love of God in us that says, yes, I love the world. I want this place to be better. I want me to be my best self. I don't just want to be richer or more successful or more powerful. No, I want something more real. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And, and verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, to wag its finger at it, but to save it. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world. And then we have four biographies that have been preserved for us of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us what did Jesus do when God sent him into the world? He healed. Not just the body, but the heart, the mind. He brought people together. He talked about how many times do you forgive someone when they sin against you? Not just seven times, 70 times seven. In other words, your life is meant to be one that is constantly forgiving others. He was bringing together and including the people that the rest of the world said because of their ethnic background, because of their social status, because of their gender or their age did not belong in the important circles of life. He brought them together. He moved towards the ones that were the social outcasts. He moved to ones that, the, towards the ones that religion says, you don't belong because your lifestyle is a mess. Jesus was moving towards them. This is what God did or Jesus did when the father sent his son into the world to heal it, to restore it, to save it, to mend it, to redeem it, to bring people back to the love of the Father. To bring people back, as Tony told us, what church is home. To bring people back to the house of God. But then probably the verse that should come after that, and we say, well, that's, that's one of the most amazing verses in scripture, is what that same writer John says at the end of the book in John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. This is the identity and the mission of the church, the people of God. That God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit and all the things that Jesus did. Remember we said Jesus was not this superhuman, mostly God, just a little bit of man. He kind of looked like a man, but he was mostly just God. And that's why he was able to do all this stuff. But he was fully God, fully man. And in fact, Jesus, we want to say, was the first human being that was fully alive. Right? And it actually tells us that, that Adam came, right? That song even talked about Adam's race, how we are Adam's descendants. Adam came and was meant to be, Adam and Eve, as human beings, fully alive. 
and they chose not to trust God. And so they were not. And so Jesus comes, the scriptures tell us actually as the second Adam to show us what humanity looks like when it is fully dependent on the Father God and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now in Jesus, we see the first person on earth who was fully alive. God sends Jesus into the world. And so therefore all we see that he did. And then he says, I'm going to send you now. He gathered his disciples together just before he left. They knew they had seen and witnessed something that was going to be world changing. And he said, okay, so as the father has sent me, now I have gathered you together and I'm sending you. And the father sent me in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I did and how I did the things I did. And, he, and then he says, even greater things than these will you do because I'm going to send you now into the world. And so God so loved the world, not only that he sent his son, but the son sends the church, the community of Jesus into the world, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. Amen? Come on. Some of you have told me that you feel like saying amen, but you're worried that other people, you just got to do it, okay? Because then everybody else will start to do it, right? All right. Someone says to you, what is the church? Is it a building? Well, clearly not. The church is the community of people just as God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world to change the world. Jesus says, here's how we're really going to change the world because I'm, I'm one and I've only been here three years and I'm leaving. But don't worry, it's going to get better because I'm sending you, my followers, into the world. Any one of you is not Jesus, but together you are my body. You are my community. And as the Father has sent me and we love the world and we love you, so we are sending you into the world. But he said, wait, I'm going to do this, but wait until you receive power. Now, I don't know what they thought that would look like, but they were like, okay, we'll wait. And so they're gathering together in a group. And you know what's cool? It says part of that group was Jesus' mother and his brothers. Isn't that so cool? To me, it's actually one of the greatest signs that Jesus was the son of God, right? Because you could convince people who aren't with you every day that maybe you're great, but the people who were closest to you, those are the ones who really know you. And if the ones who really knew Jesus, who actually early in their life were like, what are you talking about? You're our brother. We know you. By the time he had been finished three years later, we're convinced that he was the son of God. And one of them, you know, died for it. That's just a little aside. They were there waiting. The Holy Spirit comes in power. Realize, wow, this is something crazy that's happened. All of us have this Holy Spirit power. And they went out and they changed the world. And, and they so changed the world, this is mind-blowing, that by 313 AD, so a little less than 300 years after Jesus had left and gathered them together, the emperor of Rome said, uh, uncle, I give up. We will stop fighting you. We will stop persecuting you. We will stop trying to squash this. We will become one of you. Isn't that mind-blowing? That Constantine by 313 realized we can't beat this movement. The same movement that publicly shamed Jesus on the cross by crucifying him less than 300 years later said, this is so powerful. We just better get behind this horse because it's killing us. And we know why, right? Because their leaders are saying, man, these people care for the, their, our own poor better than we do. They were revolutionizing the world to the point that the Rome, the emperor, who was Lord, considered Lord, right? Eventually said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get baptized too. Within 
a couple hundred years. How did that even happen? How did it happen that this little group of people, small, they did not have any of the things that you and I think we need to change the world? We know they were not educated. The leaders of the church were not educated people. The scriptures actually tell us that, that the other religious people who had lots of education were quite amazed at the way these people spoke because they noted they were uneducated people. They did not have education. Christianity and its roots was a religion for the poor and the marginalized and the weak because it said, you know what? If you're poor, it's not because you're cursed. In fact, it's easier for poor people to know who God is because they don't depend on themselves. It was right because in that culture, if you were rich, that meant you were blessed by God. If you were poor, that meant you were poor by curse. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And he said, in fact, it's actually hard for rich people to come to know God. It should make all of us in North America go, oh, I'm nervous. He turned the whole social system upside down. And so you got these poor, uneducated, weak people. They did not have opportunity. They did not have political clout because the Jews hated them because they were saying that God had become a man, which no Jew would say that if they were holy, that God could never become a man. The Greeks, who were philosophers, loved to sit around all day, just thought it was nonsense. How could, how could God become a man? What's this talk about Jesus coming back from the dead? And Rome was like, no, Jesus is not Lord. Caesar is Lord. So stop talking. And it was a criminal activity to be a Christian. And so you were allowed to plunder the property of people who were Christians, which was making the ones who weren't poor before they became Christians, now they were poor. So you were allowed, and you could be thrown into prison, and you were basically sport and fodder for the gladiators and the lions. So how was it that these people, 300 years later, had convinced Rome itself to bow a knee to Jesus? They didn't have education. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have political opportunity. They had no institutional strength. They didn't have a building. They were often kicked out of the religious places of worship. They didn't have everything that we think we need to make a difference in the world, to change the world, and yet they totally did. How did it happen? Well, the, the, the first Christians were called followers of the way, which actually why you'll hear a lot of times in our church why we, were, we, we talk about being a follower of Jesus because it's actually a better description than, because Christianity, it is, it is hard. It's not a religious institute, a religious movement that we sort of self-identify with. You know, I'm Christian. It is a path that you walk as you follow Jesus. It is a way of life. It is a way of life that follows the author of life. That's what, that's what Christianity was and is. And so they were called followers of the way. And so how did this path somehow change the world such that, you know, over 2 billion people in the world now say Jesus is Lord and Savior from this marginal little movement? Well, we actually get a clue from the passage that Neil read for us, from us from 1 Corinthians 13. This was one of the churches that was a part of changing the world at that time. And, and this should give us a lot of hope because when you read Corinthians, man, they were a messed up church. All kinds of sin. All right, amen? The church is full of sinners. That's why we're here. Because we need help. And so this was one of those churches that changed 
the world. And Paul is talking to them about this, this miracle that we've been talking about the last six weeks, that the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And though you are weak and though you are a sinner and though you need help, he fills you with power and he makes you able to display Jesus to those around you. And that when this group of people get together, that the world sees Jesus. So he's explaining that to them and he's talking to them about spiritual gifts, but they were starting to treat it like, it's like, oh yeah, you know, we got this, we're good. We got power. They were starting to think and talk about the way of life that is power, influence, importance, hierarchy, education. And in the middle of this talk on how the Holy Spirit comes and fills you, Paul says, okay, yes, you're meant to be filled with power. You're meant to be gifted, but let me show you the more excellent way. That's the end of verse, that's the end of chapter 12 that launches into the chapter that Neil read for us. Let me show you the more excellent way. Let me show you the path. It is the way of love. It's not about gifting. It's not about title. It's not about importance. It's not about wealth. It's not about education. It's about love. It's the way of love. And not like love or love. It's Love, and then he gets into the hard truth about what love is. It is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't rude. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always hopes, always love, always protects, always trusts. This is love. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. You might be here thinking, well, I'm not sure I buy all this. Fine. But you know this, that that's true, that love will change the world. You know that, right? What, what actually will change children that are growing up in the homes of, of, of this city and the cities around the world? Is it better education? No, it's love. You know that love has a transforming relation effect. I already talked to you about that. How love will keep you from eating Crocs. <laughs> what, will, what nearly sewered our economy through the Americans, I'm not blaming the Americans, I'm just saying we, we would have done it too. They just have a little bit more money than we do. And so in 2008, those guys at investment banks, very educated people. What sewered the economy? They were self-seeking. They didn't care that they were packaging together junk mortgages as securities and selling them off as people buying investments of other people who really had no business owning a home. And it nearly sewered their entire economy and we felt the effects of it. And, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people lost investments and lost their jobs. Not because these guys didn't have enough education, they were self-seeking. They were not loving, right? Love will change the world. What will change your employment workplace and your home is if you and I are not self-seeking. If your employers were not self-seeking, your workplace would be even better than it is right now. And maybe it's good. If the people you worked with in teams did not delight in evil, but rejoiced with truth and told the truth and operated out of truth, Businesses would be better. In fact, Jim Collins' study, Good to Great, showed that. The companies that 
to have the same raw materials as other companies, but ended up having great results. And by great, he simply defined it as 15 times stock market, or uh, uh, what is the three or five times stock market growth for 15 straight years. So just purely economic success. He said came from two things, a leader who was driven and humble. In every case, they statistically proved it. What will stop civil wars in these, in these countries where we send peacekeepers who aren't keeping anything? That's not peace. We're just trying to get people not to kill each other. We're not making peace. We're just keeping it. What will stop these countries in civil war? If you study the history and tribalism, what is it? It is not keeping a record of wrongs. It is somebody saying, right? It's the same thing that fuels gang violence, that fuels domestic violence, that fuels civil war, is people keeping a record of wrongs. I'm going to write this wrong that was done to me. I'm not letting go of this. Someone has to pay for that. Love will change the world if we let it. It's true. I'm not dismissing the need and value of education and of creativity and of wealth creation, but for the purpose of what? Of love. That will change the world. That's how it works. And you and I know this is true. And yet we also know it's the hardest thing to do. And so what will make a difference in the culture that we live in? I, I was reading a, a survey that came out by Angus Reed researchers just this last year. And in 1971, one in 25 people in Canada said that they would consider themselves either atheist or connected to no kind of faith system at all. Now that number is one in, in four. From 125 to 124. Not, probably not surprising. If you think about, okay, if I pick up four people that I know in my life, is one of them sort of going, yeah, not really interested in faith. And I, maybe it seems sometimes even more than one in four. Is that bad news for us? On one level, I don't care because religion will not save the world. So let's, let's just call that out. Jesus didn't come to propagate religion. He came to end it and point people to the true God. So let's not worry about that. But all it means is that there's a whole culture of people in your life and in my life and outside the walls of this and who come in here every weekend for movies and stuff who think, God, I don't need God. So what's going to make a difference in their lives? What's going to help them become fully alive? What's actually going to help change their homes and change the way that they view themselves and see the world around them? What's actually going to let love win and rule in their hearts? Is it, is it if we have a building? Nope. If we have more money, if we have more political importance than clout, if we have uh, more education or more opportunity, if we somehow just get more successful as people in the church, is that what changed the world? No, in fact, in fact, if you look at church history, when Constantine became a Christian and church and state went like this and they finally had prominence and institutions and money and importance, it was kind of a bad thing. It kind of moved them further and further away from the way of love. And so century after century, God has been sending people and churches and stuff, this message of recapturing the way of love. The church coming back to it over and over and over again. Because it seems like the more successful we get on one level, the less loving we really are, the less uh, transformational we actually really are. So what is it that you need really in your life more of? You need more of the way of love that comes from the Spirit, that comes from son and the father who sent the son into the world, who sends the church into the world, following the way of love. That's what's needed. Our, our, the vision of our church is, is, is that we would be a community of a deep faith and a wide embrace. 
and here's why we use those four words, deep faith, wide embrace, is that the more we know this God of love who so loved the world and, and sends us into the world, the more we know Jesus and who he is in all of his beauty, in all of his power, in all of his love, that, that our posture in life will inevitably do this. And we, we cannot help but being more embracing of those around us because that is the God we love. That is the one who threw his arms wide open and said, I so love the world, I'm gonna send my son. And the son who threw his arms wide open on the cross and said, you know, Father, forgive them. He said, I died for you, you belong to me now. That that is the community we would be. The more that we love this God, the more that we would have a wider embrace and that love would begin to rule, that we would begin to walk the way of love. It's the harder way, but it's the way we've been called to love, to live. I think by and large, we can say in, in our country and in our city, the church has fallen asleep. The church has become more of an institution or a place where people huddle to escape the difficulties of life and just hope they get a little bit of a inspiration, in other words, to keep on going. And we have lost the calling in the sense of saying, this is the path of love. We don't actually need more power and more importance and more success and more education to be transformational in the world around us. We need more of the Holy Spirit that shows us the way of love. And my mind, as I was reflecting on this, just went to um, a passage in the Old Testament by a prophet named Ezekiel. And he was speaking to a people, in a sense, who had lost hope. In a sense, he was speaking to a people that would be in a culture like ours where the church, in a sense, has broken down walls, where the church is in, is in ruins. And God gave Ezekiel a vision, a picture. And so what I want to ask you to do, if you don't mind, if this doesn't weird you out too much, is just close your eyes and I want to read this passage for you, and I want you to see this in your mind's eye, okay? And, and maybe you're seeing it through the lens of your life, but I want you to not just see it through the lens of your life, but see it through the lens of the community of faith, that you're not alone, you know? And if you're a part of this church, you can see it that way. If you're just new here or you're visiting or whatever, that you would say, hey, wait, I'm not alone. I'm not on my own. I want you to, to picture this for a moment. Ezekiel writes this, and I want you to see this in your mind's eye. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. Can you see it? It's a deep valley. It's wide. You can barely see the ends of it, but you're there. And you sense being low down and high walls all around you, deep in something. And it was full of bones. Can you see them? They're just lying there. He led me back and forth among them. So now you're walking back and through. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley and bones that were dry. It's a picture of deadness, of things that are just lying still with no life in them. And he asked me this, son of man, can these bones live? I love this. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know, right? You look at the picture, the places of your life that you feel are dead, or the, the condition of, of maybe your family, your marriage, or the, 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 the city that we live in, the challenges that you are aware of in your workplace and where we are, even in this nation. And we see dead things. And it's like God says to us, can these live? And we go, God, you alone know. We don't know. Sometimes we'd like to think, hopefully, but we don't know. Then he said to me, 
prophesy to these bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Listen now, people. This is what God is saying, breathing over us. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, now picture this in your minds, I see this, tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath. There was no breath, friends. You, we can do everything we think we need to do to get stronger, to get better. And it's like flesh and skin and muscles coming together. But without breath, there is no life. And so I prophesied. Uh, so then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Amen. Friends, the, the places in your life and my life, the church itself in this city is dead bones without the breath of God. No matter how beautiful the buildings, no matter how carefully thought through the programs, no matter how well-funded the mission, no matter how educated and capable the people, it's just muscles and bones and skin, and it's dead without breath. And so we say to the Spirit of God, unless you come, and fill me, unless you come and stir in me, unless you come and make this alive, none of what we want to see will happen. And yet we believe that we are the people, that just as the Father has sent the Son into the world, so the Son sends the church into the world with the breath of God. Amen? Amen. And so... Where does that leave us as we have kind of come through these seven weeks talking about what it means when the Spirit actually comes into our lives as individuals and brings us together as that community, knits us together and makes us come to life? At the very end of this chapter, as, as Paul goes into the next chapter again to talk about gifts, he says this in, in verse, chapter 14, verse 1. And in light of all this, in light of the fact that spirits come to fill you, in light of the fact that the way of love is the best way, he says this, and this, this could be our life verse. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit. It's saying this, okay, Jesus, I'm going to walk down this path where you're calling me. And, and I know it's not a, a, a way to try to get myself better or try to, um, you know, become more educated or be more capable or be more articulate. I, I know it's not about um, trying to make myself more of who I want to be. So I'm going to walk down this path and realize this is a path of love. This is a way of love that you have sent me into the world to love. But as I go, I need you to give me gifts so that I can do what you've asked me to do. That's how it works. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spirit to fill you with power. Amen. That's how it works. And so the question I have for you is, where are you being sent? 
Like if you're part of this church and maybe you're not yet, but you're deciding to think, yeah, I want to be. You, that you're actually sent to this community. Like every one of us has to realize, wait, if God has brought you, he sent you here. You didn't just decide to walk through the door. One day God had a plan for you to be a part of this community. And that he has sent this community into this community. He has sent you into the places where you are, some of which you're quite happy to be, others of which you're so frustrated, that's where you are. Whether it's a home, a neighborhood, a workplace, and you're like, God, this is difficult. Why did you send me here? Where are you being sent? And as you go, this is what we say as we go. I'm following the way of love. I am here for love. I have been sent in here to transform this place, this space, not by power, not by might, God says, but by my spirit. Not by capability, intellect, none of which are bad, but it's just flesh and bones. Without the spirit, it's dead. And so where have you been sent? Maybe there's a relationship in your life that you know God's just been poking you at these last few weeks saying, this is, I need you to follow the way of love in this relationship. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's a, a, a place in this church that you've been called to serve that he's saying, I want you to step in. I know you don't think you know what you're doing. I know you don't think you're ready yet, but I just want you. Or maybe you've just been frozen. And he's saying, I want you to move. This is the way of love. And as you go, say, okay, fine, God, I will go down this path, but give me the gifts of the spirit. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, fill me with power. I'm following the way of love. I'm doing what you've asked me to do, but you got to give me gifts. Amen? That's the way of the church. It is the way of love. And we wait on the spirit. We say, spirit, fill us with power because if you don't, I can't do this. If you don't, I'm dead. If you don't, all I've got is flesh and bones, no life. And so in a moment, I'm just going to pray that over you. I'm just going to pray over you that, 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 that the breath of God would breathe and stir in us again. This week, those of you that are in home groups, that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be praying for each other to say, okay, where are you being sent? How can we pray for each other that more of the Holy Spirit will come into our lives? And at the end of the service, if, if you're not in a home group or you're not going to be in a home group this week, we have a couple of elders who are going to be at the front. You can just come and get that prayer now. So you say, I'm not going to be there, but I want that. So I'm going to pray over you. But remember, this is the way of love. Eagerly desire the gifts. Walk down this path. Ask for more of the Spirit. So let's stand together. I'll ask the worship team to come up and just lead us. Um, and I've actually asked Pastor Tony if he'd come and pray this over us. And maybe as he's praying, you just think, okay, God, where have you sent me? Give me the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want to bless you, I guess, with, with one line from each of those last two songs, that as you go, that you would say, okay, you are alive in me. You are. And your love never fails. You know, when I read that this week in the past, I thought, we sing that, it's, and, and there's hope in it, but to know that, God, this path, the way of love never fails, it always wins so that you are with me, so that as I go, and I'm going the way of love, and it doesn't seem like I'm working, I'm going to have faith, because I know love never fails. This is the path that will change me and change the world around me. Amen? So I just want to bless you with that, that you would know that God is alive in you, and that his love never fails. Just have a seat for a couple of moments, and just a reminder to those of you that aren't going to be at home group this week, or you're not in a home group, that when Tony's done giving us the announcements, a couple of elders will be up here at the front and over here at the front, and you can just come and receive prayer for that.